This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by the Arizona Theatre Company. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk with Paula Poundstone, the offbeat comedian and longtime panelist for the NPR show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Filmmaker Renee Tajima Pena shares details about creating the award-winning series Asian Americans for PBS. Film essayist Chris DeShiel reviews three selections from FilmFest Tucson that are screening from October 14th through the 17th, both in person and online. And a song from John Coyneman. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. I can still remember my guest Paula Poundstone from her first appearance on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. It turns out it was from 1987. She told jokes about her cats and 7-Eleven that have stayed in my mind ever since. Now a part of the rotating panel on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me for more than 20 years, Poundstone is bringing her skewed comic sensibilities to the Tucson Fox Theater on October 28th. So we talked about touring again after the quarantine, and of course, cats. Well, touring's fresh now because there was like just under a year and a half where I couldn't do my regular job. Yeah. So it's real fresh now. Anything I might have complained about before... I'm planning on complaining about later, but not at least for a couple more weeks. You know, the truth is it's the easiest, most fun job in the world. I never really had much to complain about, but that didn't stop me. So it's so nice to get back uh, with an audience. I started back in June, and uh, honestly, I really figured I'd be back, you know, shut down by now. Uh, My my prediction was second week in September, everything was going to fall apart again, but it hasn't, and I'm glad of that. Uh, part of the reason that it hasn't is a lot of venues, not all, but a lot of venues are asking for proof of vaccine and wearing masks. And that is the only way that we are going to be able to keep doing this thing that we like doing. And when I say me, I mean me as a performer and my brethren performers, but also the audience coming out to, to live shows. Um, I mean, otherwise we're going to be stuck with Zoom for the rest of our lives. (laughs) I would hazard a guess, and you can tell me if this is accurate, that your audience might be a little more inclined to follow protocols and wear masks and so forth. I believe that's true. Uh, I mean, I haven't done a study, but I believe that's true. The (laughs) other thing I believe is that the more the theaters insist upon it, the bigger my crowds will be because my people are not stupid and they don't want to go out and risk spreading the disease or getting sick themselves. And, you know, unlike some political leaders that I can think of, I love the people who come to see me. The last thing I would ever want is for anything bad to happen to them. You know, all three, all three of my children were at one time or another in their lives it literally had their lives saved by infectious disease doctors. Mm. It's not like when any of my kids, you know, had infections that were about to kill them. Did I say to the doctor, hold on a minute, what's in that? What do you... <laughs> one time when my son was little, when my son was like just walking, I think it was, 
he had a, a seizure in the middle of the night. And, you know, I called 911 and an ambulance showed up. I practically passed that kid like a football to those guys because all I knew is they knew more than me. I had no idea what it was, and they did, of course, the exact right thing, and there you go. But my point being, I would never presume to know more about medicine than people who have spent their lives. Um, and that's and that specific kind of medicine being, in this case, um, infectious disease. So that's why I'm still alive. That's what everybody's doing during the stay-at-home order was research. My neighbors kept coming out of their houses in uh, lab coats. I'm sure they were researching that. <laughs> There's some heavy science going on. And I'm sure you were ensconced at the Poundstone Institute. So you were oh, you yes. were surrounded surrounded oh, by we some were. of the greatest pieces of minds uh, in the world. So is it true that you enjoy talking to your audience during your set? Do you uh, do you work the crowd, as they used to say? I do. It's the best part of the night. For more than one reason, I suppose. Um, I do the time-honored, where are you from, what do you do for them? And in this way... Uh, little biographies of audience members emerge. And I kind of use that to set my sails. Sometimes they'll say something that reminds me of a piece of material or a story that I've told before, in which case I'll uh, I'll tell that. And additionally, uh, you know, we have conversation that is unique just to that night. Um, sometimes the conversation with them works a little bit like a pinball bumper. It just sort of sends me off in a direction. Sometimes we, we reminisce or we tell something that we've told before. You know, other times, uh, you know, you're talking about current events. Other times you're talking about something that happened, you know, right in the room in front of you. And uh, all of it is part of the mix. Almost everyone, I think, who self-quarantined to any extent probably picked up a new hobby or habit. And the thing is, all the while, no matter how frustrating or, you know, depressing it all was, I, I was still aware that I was one of the lucky people. I have a podcast called Nobody Listens to Call a Poundstone, and so I did a lot of work on that. And then I, I made a little goofy homemade game show just to, just to lift people's spirits, and I did it via Zoom in my living room. And that required some prep. And then I made a mini podcast called the French Trump Presidential Press Conference um, that I wrote and performed once a week for several months. You know, I think a lot of people thought that I was somehow just sitting in a chair um, eating bone bones, but I, I wasn't. And then, of course, I have a lot of animals, and so just taking care of them alone uh, is almost a full-time job, I swear. When you say a lot of animals, what are you uh, alluding to? Well, currently I have 10 cats and two big dogs. And, by the way, one of the great things about having two big dogs is that you really have to walk them. And uh, if they see a dog, you know, on a leash while we're walking and they decide to make a fuss and pull towards it, there's a possibility that they'll pull me down. So I only walk one at a time, which means a tremendous amount of walking, <laughs> which is actually good. What is it that when your dogs see another dog and, and head off in that direction, what is it you think they're seeking from that other canine? Drugs. That would be my first, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's pretty shady. Yeah, maybe that doesn't speak well of my dogs. I don't know. I have a dog that's part German Shepherd and part Golden Retriever, I think. And he's, he's elderly. You know, I look at him several times a day to see if his chest is rising and falling while he's laying there. Um, he's elderly. But I'm telling you, he sees another dog, especially if it surprises him. You know, if we were passing the corner and we didn't see it ahead of time and there's a dog coming up on us. 
he's like a circus dog. He's jumping on his hind legs. He's pulling it. He's like, okay. So all that stuff where you're, you know, really tired and old, pretty much just phoning, right? <laughs> I can picture him just like suddenly he's got a beach ball. Like, where'd he get that? You know? <laughs> yeah. Da, 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 da. <laughs> when, whenever yeah, people... Um, I have two cats. Whenever I'm like buying cat food, you always get somebody saying, oh, how many cats do you have? And I always say, mm, about 50 at first, just to gauge their reaction to that. And there are some people who don't even bat an eye if you say, mm, about 50. <laughs> um, but 10, 10 is a, is a remarkable number. It's a double digit number. So how complex is the hierarchy of cats at the Poundstone residence? I actually think that they are not certain who's the leader. Um, so, like, I get up in the morning to large tufts of grass, not grass, large tufts of fur on the rug, <laughs> um, and, and I hear a lot of, you know, hissing and yowling in the middle of the night. I always say it's like primary season, but not as aggressive. Um, they're, you know, they're struggling to determine who, who is their leader. But I, I actually just got two kittens like a few months ago, and one of those kittens actually will probably end up being the uh, cat in charge mm. because he's big and sinewy, fearless, and I just don't think another cat would school him into following him. He used to lunge at my really wild dog's snout. I have a dog that's part Golden Retriever and part Newfoundland and has a bad attitude. That's asking for trouble. It's like from one of those dare shows. Paula Poundstone is appearing on October 28th at the Fox Tucson Theater, and she always jumps when she gets that call from Peter Sagal to join in on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Documenting the entire history of the Asian-American experience for television is a pretty tall order, but my next guest, Renee Tajima-Pena, was more than qualified to take it on. Tajima-Pena has been making socially conscious documentaries her entire career, in addition to being a film essayist for The Village Voice and a commentator for NPR. She is currently a professor of Asian-American studies at UCLA. She produced the five-part series, Asian Americans, that aired on PBS stations across the country last year. And next week, she'll visit the U of A campus as a featured speaker in the 2021 Tucson Humanities Festival. For Asian American, we came at an inflection point in the nation's history. You know, after the abolition or legal abolition of slavery, after the Civil War, you know, the U.S. in this kind of... Um, era of nation building, you know, building the economy. So we needed labor as a country, but also the U.S. was becoming an empire during the late 19th century, early 20th century, the early 1900s. The United States was seizing territories in the Atlantic, like, you know, Puerto Rico, um, and also in the Pacific, the Philippines, which is a huge country, um, became a U.S. territory. Uh, Hawaii, Guam. So there were these new millions of people. I mean, there, the U.S., like today, was going through this incredible period of transformation. The demographics, the population of the United States was really, really changing. So you have these millions of people who are newly colonized in these, these other lands. 
Um, you have Chinese immigrants coming in. Um, you know, we've taken tribal lands, you know, parts of Mexico, and then newly freed African Americans. So they become a part of the body politic. And the question is for Americans, well, all these new people, new non-white people, now what do we do with them? Are they Americans like us? And sadly, um, the answer for many years was, no, they're not really like us. For Asian Americans, you know, what, we went through a period of exclusion, say from the 1870s and the Page Act all the way to the 1940s, um, where, you know, we were basically excluded from immigrating to this country. Even though people found ways of coming, we had no legal path to immigrate and become citizens. You do show a really vibrant community that exists in New Orleans that mm -hmm. is based on South Asian immigrants. So for the Asian American series, we film a South Asian family um, that traces back to Muksad Ali, who actually married Ella Blackman, an African-American woman in New Orleans. And people are really surprised. Oh, I didn't know there were Indian immigrants in the 19th century in New Orleans. But actually, in the previous film, my America or Honky Do Love Buddha, I also filmed a Filipino American community that, you know, had come in, I think, in the 1700s um, when Filipino sailors had jumped ship from Spanish galleons and started to settle in like St. Bernard Parish and, and New Orleans and, you know, areas around the bayous of um, Louisiana. In another film, I filmed more recent Vietnamese refugees who had settled in Louisiana. And as I understand, a lot of the beignet shops in New Orleans are staffed by or run by Vietnamese refugees. A question that I have about stereotyping that I think I was tone deaf to before is the idea of the concept of the model minority mm -hmm. and how that may seem on the surface to someone oh, that that would be a cultural asset to any group. In the Asian American community, though, it can also be hurtful. Renee, tell me a little bit about how your film explores this concept of the model minority and what it means to white Americans who have never thought of it in that context. Well, one thing, it's been wheeled against Black and Brown and Indigenous Americans. If you look back in the 1800s, you know, there was this idea that, and this was kind of paraphrasing this California legislator, that and I'm going to use the terms they used back then, in terms of the value, this racial hierarchy, the value of a human being, he said it takes two so-called Chinamen to equal the worth of one white man. But then it takes two, two so-called Negroes to equal the value of one so-called Chinaman. So you can see how um, even back then, Asians were used as this wedge, like in this hierarchy, you know, we have this greater value. We cover in the series in the 1950s and 60s, which was like now this real inflection point in the United States. You know, we had the Cold War going on, you know, this, this fight against communism um, overseas. And then at home, the rising civil rights movement. And at that time, the Asians were used, really weaponized as the model minority. Um, if you just Stay quiet and work hard. You'll make it in America. Um, don't, you know, protest. Don't march. Don't make demands. So 
so that the way we were weaponized then, you know, I think you can see it even today, the, the way the model minority is being weaponized, not only at the expense of other people of color, but also at the expense of other Asian Americans. A lot of people have these personal experiences where, you know, the idea of the model minority, if they're not like into math or, you know, they don't live up to that kind of stereotype. Um, they pay a personal price for that. But but I think that especially the young generation of Asian Americans, when they think they think about us, they don't only think about, you know, their racial group or ethnic group. They think very inclusively. I think that's why there's there's hope. Filmmaker Renee Tajima Pena's five-part documentary series, Asian Americans, aired in 2020. Members can stream all of the episodes with AZPM Passport on the PBS video app. Visit azpm.org for more information. The University of Arizona College of Humanities presents Asian Americans, a history of identity, contributions, and challenges by Renee Tajima Pena on Tuesday, October 19th. It begins at 7 p.m. at the Health Sciences Innovation Building on East Rockman. The lecture is free, but seating is limited and will follow COVID protocols. Online registration is required. It will also be available via live stream as a part of the 2021 Tucson Humanities Festival. From a documentary about one of the world's best-known but most private filmmakers to a conversation of discovery between two disparate characters, film essayist Chris DeShiel is here to offer some recommendations from a special roster of films that you can see this weekend. Film Fest Tucson is happening from October 14th to the 17th, yet more proof, if you needed it, that Tucson is a movie-loving town. FFT is one of the newer additions to the many film festivals in the city, and it's already well known for its broad reach and inventive programming. This year, the Delta variant has decided that most of the films will be streaming, with tickets sold at filmfesttucson.org. There are free outdoor film screenings scheduled for Main Gate Square and the North Lawn of the Children's Museum. The Film Fest is known for its excellent selections, strong features and short films from new talent and discoveries worldwide. This year's schedule is as impressive as ever. I watched a few of the pictures and can give you just a glimpse of what's being offered. Vagabonds was written and directed by Philippe Dejeau. It's a portrait of young people on the margins in France, homeless, angry, addicted. We first meet a guy named Soha who was on the run after shooting a man who attacked him in a drug house. After weeks on the road, he happens upon a young addict, a woman, who is about to be raped by three men. He shoots one of them and rescues the woman, then reluctantly tries to find help for her to kick her heroin addiction. Simultaneously with this story, we meet an irascible young woman who lives in her car and hangs out and takes care of an older, mentally ill man. Enter another young woman, this one middle class and wanting to escape that world. The two women clash, but gradually learn to tolerate each other. Eventually, the storylines intersect. Dejo fashions a good ending for everyone, while the performances redeem whatever missteps there are in the plot. Pauline Bressian is especially moving as Joe, the angry woman living in the car. The picture is good at showing all the hard work that goes into being homeless, in other words, how exhausting it is. 
And Zhou makes us appreciate those characters as ordinary people rather than symbols of struggle. Vagabonds is a satisfyingly gritty slice of life. The Winter House is an example of a kind of film that we don't see very much anymore. What I would call a chamber film, a movie with only two or three characters working something out together. Quietly dramatic like a smaller play, but with the advantage of location. Lily Taylor plays an author in her 50s, a novelist named Eileen, who rents a house in the New Hampshire countryside for the winter to get away from people for a while and also to write. But she surprises an intruder who claims that the owners of the house are his parents. He's an awkward and self-conscious man in his 30s named Jesse, played by Francois Arnaud. Jesse says that he just wants to stay warm, sleep on the couch, and then leave the next morning. Eileen says okay, but a day later he shows up again. No, this isn't a stalker film. Jesse is just a confused guy with the gift of candor that interests the brilliant Eileen. The film is mostly these two characters talking, and the dialogue can be prickly and eventually a bit alarming. The young man's brash demeanor, bordering on rudeness, running up against the seemingly impervious novelist. As you might expect, he's not who he says he is, and she's not the ice queen she'd like to be. It's an interesting dynamic. The film was written and directed by Keith Boynton, who gives the picture a slight edginess of tone that holds your attention. The main attraction here, though, is Lily Taylor, an actress I've always enjoyed watching, and who in this rare instance takes center stage. See The Winter House for her. FilmFest Tucson also presents a large offering of non-fiction films, 10 documentary features, plus a lot of shorts. I chose to watch one called Kubrick by Kubrick because I've always been interested in the director Stanley Kubrick. He has a reputation as an uncommonly brilliant filmmaker, and he didn't talk much offset, so there's a mystique surrounding him. Kubrick by Kubrick was directed by Gregory Monroe, who has done biographical docs before on people as diverse as Toulouse-Lautrec and Calamity Jane. What makes this film different than any other Kubrick documentary is that it draws on extensive taped interviews with the director himself by French critic Michel Simon. There's a lot of beautiful footage from the films, which never fail to make an impact on me with their hard, intense visual style. But the most important reason to see this is to hear the man himself talk about his work, what motivates him and challenges him, his views on acting and his experiences as a photographer. Perfectionism was his one great flaw, by the way, although he believed it was his greatest virtue. Tales about making an actor go through 38 takes, or more, show us why he was considered a difficult director. But also, as I think Kubrick by Kubrick demonstrates, he was an artist of genius. Once again, go to filmfesttucson.org for tickets and schedules. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris Shield. Southwest troubadour John Coyneman has been recognized this year with a special award for the video for his song, Long Way Home. A collaboration between Coyneman, his wife Joe, and photographer Michael Hyatt, the song's video portrays the plight of immigrants on the U.S.-Mexico border. It was awarded the International Music Video Prize at the 2021 Procida International Film Festival in Italy. Here now is the song. When I needed something I saw lives go wasted Was all for nothing 
I was left for dead in the great unknown. A long, long way from home. I've seen true forgiveness, retribution. I've been close to the truth, but far from salvation. I've seen God in the shadows, blood on the stone. was Long Way Home by John Coyneman. It's featured on his album, Under the Sun. You can see the award-winning video featuring the border photography of Michael Hyatt on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Thank you to Arizona Theatre Company for their support of Arizona Public Media.